All right. Well, we return this morning to two promises that we have read recently as we have walked through stories recently in the book of Genesis. And essentially what we're doing is we're hitting pause in the narrative. We're going to be doing this from time to time because Genesis is a complicated book. The stories are very complicated and often the stories are teaching more than one thing at a time. So we walk through the story and get the big picture and then sometimes we got to go back and unearth some of these gems that are buried deep in the text. What God is doing is normal people are living out their lives in the book of Genesis and as God is interacting with them and their story is unfolding and the story of human history is unfolding, along the way sometimes God makes these incredible promises to people that change and even alter the course of human history, promises that begin and dawn in this age of Genesis, and even today in 2022 are becoming more and more fulfilled each day. And so sometimes we just stop and we examine the promises that God makes in this book, the way they unfold through the Bible, and the way they point to the one that we love the most, the way they point to Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we do that, as we look to two blessings that have been spoken recently in these stories, that God would just enlarge our hearts for Jesus. That we would walk out of here just passionately inflamed for him and for his glory that is revealed in these sorts of promises like this. Let me give you kind of the context here. We're going to read one promise that God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 22. And then one very similar blessing that Rebecca's family speaks to her. And you may notice some similarities between the two of them. We start at Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. The story here is that Abraham has just stood the test. He was willing to offer even his only son, Isaac, when God called it from him. God intervened at the last minute and said, no, don't harm the boy, but because you stood the test, here is my promise to you. It's Genesis twenty-two fifteen to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The words of the Lord from Genesis 22. We turn next to Genesis 24 to verse 60. In this story, the boy Isaac has grown into a man, and they are seeking a wife for Isaac. Whoever marries Isaac will marry into these promises of many descendants. And so this woman, Rebecca, says, yes, I will answer the call. I will be his wife, and in doing so, I will receive these promises. So her family, who has heard of these promises that were made to Abraham, now blesses her as she goes to join his family as his daughter-in-law, essentially saying... May those promises come true for you. Here's what they say in Genesis 24, 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. The words of the Lord. Through those two blessings, I believe our Lord is calling us this morning to overcome our greatest enemies, that is Satan, sin, and even death this morning, by entrusting ourselves to God's promises, resting on them. 
Uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to examine these two blessings, these two promises. Uh, we're going to kind of see what the elements of them are. Then we will walk through one way we might mistakenly think they are fulfilled in the Old Testament, but then we'll turn to the New Testament and see how they are more beautifully and more fully than I think Abraham or Rebecca could have ever imagined fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's analyze them first and see just what God is promising to Abraham and then later to his daughter-in-law, Rebecca. We essentially see three parts to these two blessings. The first is, is many descendants. God says you're going to have many descendants. Uh, then one of those descendants will possess the gate of those who hate him. That means he will conquer his enemies. And he will bless every nation on earth. Uh, we see those in a few places. The, the first one, many, many descendants. That's promised first to Abraham in verse 17 of chapter 22. We can see there, I will surely multiply your offspring. You see that? And then to Rebecca, may you become thousands of ten thousands in 2460. Uh, the basic idea here is they will have a whole lot of descendants coming after them. And we're given three images to, to kind of picture that. First, we see in 2217 the picture of as many as the stars in the sky. And may, maybe you've stood under the stars in the sky and looked up before and been not only overwhelmed at how many, but just in awe of their beauty and their wonder. Uh, maybe you've seen pictures from the Hubble telescope or pictures someone took here on earth that just have you know, just littered stars all over the whole thing. And you look at just the picture and think I could never count the number of stars in that little picture that's a small fraction of what is in the sky. That sense of overwhelming number, too many to count. Wow, look how many. I would never try to count that many. They're going to have that many descendants coming after them. Next image we get for that is the sand on the seashore, also in chapter 22, verse 17 to Abraham. Their descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore. Uh, maybe you've been to the beach before and gotten sand on, on your foot before and just kind of looked down at the, all the sand that's on the bottom of your foot and started to brush it off. And have you ever thought, man, I can't even count the, the grains of sand that are stuck to my foot right now, right? And then you look down and see how much sand is on the whole seashore, which overwhelming amount of grains of sand. Their descendants are going to be like that, overwhelming in number. And the third picture of many descendants we get is in chapter 24, verse 60. Uh, they say to her, may you become thousands of ten thousands, right? So it starts with thousands, and then it grows to ten thousand. This just growing, multiplying number. You, you might think of Rebecca herself as as one dot, and then suddenly that dot multiplies into a line of several thousand dots. Right? Already an overwhelming number. But then that line of several thousand dots multiplies into a rectangle tens of thousands of dots high. And now there's just an overwhelming number of dots on the page. Her offspring are going to be like that, just multiplying in a way that you can barely visualize the overwhelm. So many, many descendants for them, which to a person in the age of Genesis was very meaningful and perhaps what they wanted most out of life. Second part of the promise said to Abraham at the end of verse 17 is, may your offspring he shall possess the gate of his enemies. And late in 2460, uh, possess the gate of those who hate him. So 
This is one descendant, one person, right? Singular, the gate of his enemies or the gate of those who hate him, right? So this is one person who rises up probably as a king among those people and who decisively conquers his enemies. In the ancient world, the gate was the vulnerable part in the city's defense, right? If you can bring down their gate, you've got the city. It's kind of like the password on your phone, right? If someone gets your password, they've got your whole phone, they got all your accounts. If you can get through that gate, you got the whole thing. One of their descendants will look to his enemies and crumble all of their gates and conquer them decisively. That's the second part of the promise. Third is only given to Abraham, and we don't see it echoed in the blessing to Rebekah, and that is in verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this same single offspring that will come from Abraham will bless every nation on earth. So essentially what this is here is from them will come many, many descendants that will be a a people together. And their leader, their king, their whoever's in charge, their representative will both decisively conquer all of their enemies and will bless every nation in the world. And so they are left at the end of this to sit back in faith and wonder and think, how is the Lord? I can't wait to see how the Lord does this. What will this people look like? Who, who will this one offspring be who conquers all of our enemies and at the same time blesses every nation in the world? And they just got to sit and wait and see. But we have the rest of the story. We, we know what's going to happen. And so we can actually look and see that it unfolds in a way that I wonder if they could ever even imagine it. Now, as the pages of the Old Testament unfold, uh, we, we might understand how the nation of Israel might mistakenly think that they are the true and final fulfillment of these promises. Uh, as time would go on, uh, Abraham and Rebekah would become uh, father and, and, and later mother of many nations, several nations as promised. One of them would be the nation of Israel. And that nation would become very many people, just like this, innumerable even, 600,000 men in just 400 years. And never mind women and children, like 2 million people walking across the desert with Joshua leading them into the promised land. And Joshua goes up to Jericho. And what happens? The walls and the gates fall, right? So they decisively conquer all of their enemies and all of God's enemies. So here's this numerous people, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, walking up to cities like Jericho and Ai, and just they've got the gate, right? They conquer their enemies, and they've got their strong leader on top. And generations later, David rises up, and he conquers his enemies. He's got the gates of his enemies. And King Solomon doesn't even have to lift a sword to conquer his enemies. He's got so much political power. So we can understand they might look at that and say, hey, the promises come true, right? Here we are, innumerable number of people conquering our enemies. And hey, the promises, we are it. We are the fulfillment. But there are a couple reasons why, why that doesn't work. First of all, it's also promised that this one offspring will be a blessing to all nations. And so it doesn't really work that they're conquering and even annihilating these other nations, right? How can it be a blessing to all nations if he's also conquering all nations? Uh, So then that doesn't quite add up. And more than that, we've got pretty good reason to think that the other nations aren't the enemies in the first place, because how could this one offspring possess the gates of his enemies and 
bless all the nations of the world, obviously the, the enemies and the nations can't be the same person. It must be other enemies that this one offspring is going to conquer. And so Israel makes a good picture of the promises to come, but they can't be the, somebody better than Joshua, somebody better than David must be coming in the future. Another reason that we couldn't see Israel as the final fulfillment of this is that the story of Genesis itself actually tells us to expect one who will come and will conquer much bigger enemies than other nations. Uh, that actually begins way back in chapter 3. And if you've got a Bible open, maybe you'd turn to chapter 3 with me and we can see that begin to come true there. Before Abraham, and before Noah, and before many of the heroes in Genesis, we're all the way back to Adam and Eve, world's first man and woman. And all sorts of problems have just been ushered into the world. We were living in a paradise but because a particular serpent came into the garden where Adam and Eve lived and deceived Adam and Eve to sinning against God, all of the sudden death enters the world and sin enters the world and suffering enters the world and marital strife enters the world and the pain of childbirth enters the world. All the problems that we encounter in the world are all of a sudden here. They have come upon us because we have sinned against God. But the Lord looks to that serpent, the one who brought the bigger problems into the world. And here's what he says in verse 15. This is Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, there's that same word, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, this story starts off telling us to expect an offspring of Eve who comes and conquers far bigger enemies than the Amalekites or Jericho. Uh, no, enemies like, like the serpent, enemies like sin, enemies like death. So now we're waiting for one to come to conquer those enemies. And so when Abraham is told, your offspring, same word, right? That one, who, that one promised offspring who's going to come, he's going to possess the gates of his enemies. We know what kind of category to think of enemies in. Now we're talking about death, sin, the big problems of the world. And when Rebecca is told, may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him, we know we're talking bigger enemies here, aren't we? Enemies like the serpent and his offspring and the things he brings into the world. So we've, we've gotten that kind of a meta level of the narrative of human history here. Great and grand enemies, not other countries, but the biggest problems in the world coming through some promised offspring. And what I want to do here is spend the rest of our morning together showing you who that promised offspring is. Who, who are the many offsprings who will come from Abraham and Sarah and later Rebecca and Isaac? Who is the one promised offspring who will bless every nation on earth and conquer all of his enemies? And who are those enemies that will be defeated? I want to spend the rest of this morning showing you that that promised offspring is Jesus Christ, the hero of the New Testament and the hero of the Bible. That those many offsprings, that people that he leads, is actually us. It is the church of Jesus Christ, his followers. 
and that those enemies that he defeats are many, but we're going to focus just on three, on Satan himself, on sin, and on death. So that's what we're going to dive into this morning. To do that, we're going to have to flip around a lot in the New Testament, so just keep, keep your Bibles handy and ready to flip around a lot. We're going to see, actually, the New Testament teaches that all these things are fulfilled in this way in Jesus Christ. So, so the idea here, to just recap the promise, many offsprings, one of them, their leader, will conquer his enemies and bless every nation in the world. And what I'm saying here from the New Testament is that Jesus is the one offspring. We are the many people and the enemies are big things like sin, Satan, and death. If you want to see all three of those in one verse in the New Testament, let's flip to Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. In this story, Jesus has just asked Peter, who am I? Who do you think I am? And Jesus says to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ was a word that they used to describe this promised offspring who was coming. You might have heard the word Messiah before. Same, same concept, even, even essentially the same word. You are that promised offspring of Eve, that promised offspring of Abraham, that promised offspring of Rebekah. And Jesus responds to him here. First in 16, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you're that one, you're that one offspring. In 17, Jesus answered him saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And... The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who possesses the gates of his enemy? Jesus Christ says, I will build my church, my many people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. How's he going to do that? Right? I mean, they're expecting a national hero who's going to come and conquer other nations. And here he says, I'm going to build my church and even death and sin and Satan will not prevail against my church. How could he do something like that? Well, not with a sword. No, he will do it by dying on a cross executed as a criminal, essentially paying for the sins of his people himself by dying himself and then rising from the dead to show that he has conquered death and then ascending up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and rules on high even now. And this is why Hebrews 10 says that after making a sacrifice for sins, he ascended to heaven, sat down, and waits until the time when all of his enemies will become a footstool under his feet. What are those enemies? Sin, Satan, death, all these things that plague the people of God and the whole world. Jesus sits in heaven waiting until the moment when they are fully conquered and made a footstool under his feet. This is why he can say, I will build my church on the confession that I am the Christ and the gates of hell even shall not prevail against it. That one who is coming is Jesus Christ and he has come. His people are the church, not the nation of Israel. No, no, no. The, full, the final offspring of Abraham, Rebekah, Sarah, Isaac, all of them are the church. 
a people of all nations who are blessed by this one offspring, Jesus Christ. This is why the Great Commission says to go and take the good news to all nations, right, around the world, take them to everybody, because this Jesus is to be a blessing to every nation on earth as they hear his good news, and many of them turn and receive him as Savior. This is why in Revelation, they're now looking back and saying, you have created for yourself a people of all tribes and all tongues and all nations. So this one offspring, Jesus, not just a blessing to Israel, but a blessing to all nations, to everyone around the world. And so we might ask, okay, how can you become one of those people? How how can I be one of the ones that Jesus blesses? How can I be part of that church? And to answer that, we can flip to Galatians chapter three. Let's turn there together. We've seen that Jesus is the promised offspring, that his church are the many offspring of Abraham, that he conquers his enemies. How can I become then one of those offsprings of Abraham? Galatians 3 tells us. We'll start at verse 7. It just says it flat out. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the people who get to be the sons of Abraham? Those who have faith in this Jesus. It goes on to say, in the scripture... Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the Gentiles are all the other nations in the world, not Israel, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, here it is, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, so the real offspring of Abraham then, they aren't Israel. No, they're, they're the church. They're the people of God today who become his by trusting him, by by faith in him. That means that you can read a promise like that written thousands of years ago. May you become myriads of myriads. May, May your offspring be as many as the sand on the seashore. And you can actually become one of those grains today, here, thousands of years later, one of those grains of sand on the sea, one of those stars in the sky, one of those many descendants of Abraham and later of Rebekah. You can become one. How can you become one? By placing your faith in this same Jesus Christ, this truer and greater offspring of Abraham. So what we must do then to become one of his is to trust him in faith. This is why Revelation will later say that the saints of God, the church of God, overcome their enemies by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, by our trust in the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us and the words that we are willing to say. When Jesus died, he died for me. When Jesus rose, he rose for me. Those testimonies that we're willing to give on that rock, he builds his church in the gate gates of hell cannot overcome it. With that faith, we become children of Abraham. We become children of Rebekah. And so if you wish to be one of these blessed children who have this great offspring of Jesus representing you and conquering your enemies, what you must do is trust Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham and the true son of Rebekah. The enemies then are, are many, right? There are many enemies Jesus overcomes. And what I want to do now is spend the rest of this morning focusing on three enemies that Jesus defeats, blessing people of all nations. If you're one of those people who trust in Jesus, he defeated these enemies for you. 
And if you do not trust Jesus, these are enemies he's willing to defeat for you if you would turn and you would trust him. Three enemies Jesus defeats, blessing people from all nations. The first is the one that was introduced there in the garden, that serpent, the one who initially deceived Eve and then Adam into rebellion against God, which shattered and broke the world and shattered and broke our relationships. It all came through this serpent. Revelation says later that ancient serpent's name is Satan, and he's at this point a dragon who is filled with wrath against the church. And Jesus says, I have defeated him, right? Satan still today loves to deceive us into sin and rebellion against God. He prowls around like a roaring lion, it says, seeking someone to devour. If you are not a Christian, he is still your enemy, and he still intends on your doom and destruction. If you are a Christian, you're very much protected from him, but he hates you even more and is even more enraged against you and even is even more on the prowl against you. Some serpents are constrictors that squeeze and suffocate their prey as they wrap around around them. And other serpents are, are venomous. They inject their prey with, with venom and that the venom gets in their heart and that's how they kill them. Satan is really both. He wraps around those he has in his clutches and just suffocates us. And at the same time, he, Jesus says he's the father of lies and every lie we have ever heard that tempts us to rebel against God is, is like a shot of venom in our arm or in our leg. And if we receive it, it will make its way all the way into our heart and it will just rot us from the inside out. This is what he loves to do, to just strangle his victims, inject them with lies that wind up corrupting their heart and destroying them. He would love to do this to every single one of us. This is why we have heard so many lies that tempt us to turn against God. Like, be true to yourself. You ever heard that? Venom. It's a lie. If you're true to yourself and you receive that shot of venom and it gets all the way into your heart, it will turn you into a person overcome by selfishness who will not be true to their spouse and will not be true to their employer and will not be true to their friends and will not be true to their church and certainly will not be true to their God because we've become overcome with being true to ourself. And so you can sometimes just almost turned into a panic, and how would I overcome a lie like that? What's the, what's the anti-venom to that venom that has been injected into me, this lie of being true to myself and following my heart? The anti-venom is, is a person. It's Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. The anti-venom is to turn from whatever noise you might be hearing, look to Jesus in faith and say, I trust your teachings to be true. And so if you say the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, then I'll be true to you. And if you say the second commandment is to love my neighbor as myself, then I'll be true to my neighbor underneath my loyalty to you. And I can reject then the venom of that lie. Others of us hear whispered in our ear all the time, you are so broken, there's no way Jesus would ever love you. Anybody ever hear that just whispered into their heart? It's venom. It's a lie. And it 
comes from the father of lies. And if, if you receive that injection of venom, it will make its way all the way into your heart. It will turn you into the most insecure person who cannot trust anybody because why would anybody ever love me? And will shatter all of your relationships. What's the anti-venom to a venomous lie like you are too broken for Jesus to ever love you? The anti-venom is Jesus Christ and his words. How do you overcome Satan's lies? By that offspring, by Jesus Christ and his words. We turn to him and he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means Jesus didn't die for you when you were at your best. Jesus died for you when you were at your very worst. If you can think all the way back to the the darkest and worst moment of your life, if, if it helps, you can pinpoint as even right there, Jesus Christ looked upon me with grace and love and said, I'll die for that person to redeem them. You can't go lower than his grace can reach. You can't be more broken than he can put back together. No, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of these lies, all of this venom that our enemy would love to inject in us, for every single one of them, the antidote, the antivenom is a person. It's the offspring of Rebecca. It's Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the one that overcomes Satan. This is why we'll we'll read later today in the book of Romans, uh, very simple words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's a conquered enemy. And why all the way back in Genesis 3, it was promised, this woman will bear an offspring who will crush that Satan's head. He will crush that serpent's head. We have a already defeated enemy. Why do we have that? Because the offspring of Rebecca came and he crushed him, he conquered him. And so that's one great enemy that is defeated for the people of God by Jesus Christ, Satan himself. The next enemy that Jesus Christ defeats blessing people from all nations is, is sin. Now, in a sense, Satan is the one who brought all of this mayhem and suffering into the world by deceiving Adam and Eve to sin against God. In another sense, you could say just as truly that that we brought it into the world by sinning against God. The reason the world's broken is because we, the the keepers, the ones given dominion over the world, have rebelled. It's a a world in rebellion against God. And so, of course, it will be shattered and, and, and broken. We brought all this in by turning on our God. But Matthew one twenty one says of this Jesus as he's about to come into the world, he will save his people from their sins. And Galatians 1.4 says he gave himself for our sins. And so, so even the individual sins you have committed against God, if you look back on them and say, I just abhor those. I wish they would go away. I wish they would stop haunting me. Those sins, if you count them as your enemies like that and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, he says, I count those as my enemies too and I take care of those. I conquer and defeat those sins so that they cannot haunt you any longer. Some of us, I know some of you would look back at just one great sin you committed one time that just keeps haunting you. And you're thinking, if it just weren't for that one thing that I did, I think I could be happy with my life, but it just won't go away. And I think it helps to look at yourself as one who is just entrapped in a dungeon that has a gate 
right? That sin has just entrapped you and there's a gate and you just can't get out. Because then we could see Jesus as the one who possesses the gates of his enemy, the one who walks up to the gates and just says, this thing's mine. Boom, and comes and springs a host of captives in his wake. Jesus has conquered even that sin. Others of you perhaps have a repeated sin. It's in your life over and over and over. And many times you've sworn you'd never do it again. And then you did it again. And you're thinking, I'm just enslaved to this thing. This thing has me. It really does feel like I'm in a dungeon and I can't get out of this thing. Jesus looks at those sins and he says, paid for, conquered. I've taken care of all of them. He has walked right up to the dungeon, taken the gate off the door, and given you all the power you need to get up and walk right out of there. So he's conquered it in the sense that he's earned forgiveness for you, and you're not a slave to it anymore. It once had you in its clutches, and it was impossible to leave, but now he's taken the gate off the door. Now you have the power to get up and walk out, and he's given you everything you need to never commit that sin again. You do have to receive and use everything he has given you to conquer it, but he's, he's equipped you. So now you're no longer a prisoner in a dungeon with the gates barred. Now you're a warrior who is armed and equipped for the fight that you can win. Now, Satan would love you to think that you could never conquer that sin. Jesus says, I've given you everything you need. Put on the whole armor of God and you can conquer it. Why can you do that? Because Jesus defeated it for you. Jesus has conquered sin and he's done it on our behalf. He has crushed all the offspring of the serpent, including our sins that we've committed against him. So that's the second enemy that Jesus destroys and defeats for us, for his people, our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what the last enemy is. Now there are others besides these three, but the very last one, 1 Corinthians says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus conquered death for his people. And the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament use that gates imagery is just so beautiful as time goes on in that story. Often it actually uses the images of gates to talk about death in a way that may actually be confusing for us because the way that you might say the afterlife worked in the Old Testament era was a little different than the way that it works now, right? You, you are probably used to, if you're a Christian, uh, the idea of those who have faith in Jesus after we die, our spirits go to heaven, and those who do not, our spirits go down to hell. And then at the end of things, on the last day, Jesus will raise us from the dead, everyone will be judged and separated forever. All that is true, but it's easy to forget that it actually wasn't always that way in the Old Testament. There was another era before this. And so I wonder if you have ever read in the Old Testament and seen this place called Sheol and thought, what is going on with that? Like there's this land of the dead, it sounds like. And both the righteous and the wicked both seem to go down to it. Like Jacob, a faithful one, is saying, my gray head is going to go down to Sheol. And David says, that's, that's where I'm headed, down to Sheol. And so wait, why do the righteous go down along with the wicked in the Old Testament? And Jesus makes that kind of clear in a parable that he tells with a rich man and, and Lazarus. Uh, one righteous, one not righteous. And at the end of the story, they both die and they both go down to the land of the dead. And there's a, a great chasm there in Sheol that cannot be crossed. 
And on one side are all of those who died waiting and longing for this offspring to come and rescue. And that's Abraham's down there. Jesus actually mentions Abraham there. Jacob, David, all the rest of them are there dwelling in comfort and rest and worship and just waiting for the day that death is conquered. Then the great chasm that cannot be crossed. And then on the other side, the rich man from the parable and many others in torment and agony, just longing to escape. And the book of Job and the Psalms and many others talk about gates, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death that had trapped them in. So the righteous on one side in comfort and rest, the wicked on the other side in torment and agony. Neither of them can cross the chasm and nobody can get out because there are gates and the door is barred. That's why it's so important that Jesus then says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against. The Old Testament talks about those gates. And so what Jesus essentially did was he died and as we have said for a long time, he descended into the dead, right? And what did he do down there? He broke the gates. He went down and he gathered up Abraham, David, Jacob, Rebecca, Isaac, all of them. And First Peter and Jude and many others say he proclaimed even the gospel to their spirits down there and said, friends, good news, I have come, I have conquered death. Do you see the shattered gates? Let's go. And then it says when he ascended up on high into heaven, he led a host of captives in his wake. That's why you see now in Revelation, the souls of the martyrs are in heaven, right? Crying out to God if they're not down in the good part of Sheol. And it's been cleared out. The gates are open. They have risen up. This means that in a beautiful and wonderful way, Jesus conquered the gates of hell for our ancestors, for our forefathers. And what that means for you is that he's done it for you as well. He broke the gates of Sheol. He also has the key to your coffin, and when we, when we lower you down into the earth, he says, well, you're not keeping me out of there. I'll go right there and lead one captive in his wake, taking your soul all the way up to heaven where you'll dwell and rest and worship, just waiting for Jesus to come back and bring us back to earth in resurrected bodies. The point is, it's easy to be afraid of death, but Jesus has conquered it for us. It is an enemy defeated, and that is good news. So those are three enemies that Jesus conquers, blessing people from every nation of the world, people as numerous as the stars in the sky, Satan, sin, and death. I hope you can see that that Jesus is worthy of all of your worship. If he says the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, can you see that he's worthy of all of it? A God who defeats enemies at that level for you? Is he worthy of all of your worship? Yes, yes, he is. It is not enough to even hear a message like this and say, yes, that's a good message. I'm glad I heard that. No, we have to leave here with our hearts alive in thankfulness for this God who has conquered your greatest enemies, the ones who have haunted you all of your life, he says, I take care of them. So leave this morning in worship of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a word to anyone here this morning who, who does not have their trust in Jesus Christ, a warning to anyone who would leave here today 
still counted as his enemy. And there are a lot of people who would, who would live as enemies of Jesus and maybe not quite realize it. I, can, I know many who would like to live, not necessarily declaring, I hate Jesus, I'm an enemy of Jesus, but just wanting to ignore him, right? It sure would be nice if all that church stuff didn't exist and I could just go about my life. Maybe a desire to live on and be successful or live on and pursue some cause, but not have to worry much about the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Maybe you could say it's a desire to just kind of be neutral in this fight, right? Those people love Jesus. Those people hate him. I don't really care, right? I'm, I'm just neutral in this whole thing. And I want you to know that kings don't operate like that. When you live under a king, you're either for him or you're against him. You either hear his decrees and you follow him and you respect him as the king, or, or you don't. You don't get to ignore the king and say that you're still kind of buddy-buddy with him when you're ignoring them. No, when Jesus comes back, you'll be on one side or on the other. Several others would be counted as enemies of Jesus and maybe not say it out loud, but they might think of themselves, and maybe you think of yourself as kind of an enemy of the church, right? I don't have a problem with Jesus, but I got a problem with this church, right? I don't like those oppressive teachings that they're spreading. I wish they would stop doing what they're doing. I wish that message would stop. I wish they would stop growing, right? A hatred for the church. And if Jesus is a real person, well, not too concerned really about that. Your problem is with the church. Well, there was once a man named, named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who had the same feelings about the church, uh, so strong that he went from house to house, rounding them up, saying, if you don't, if you don't deny this message, I'm going to imprison you and I'm going to try to kill you, just house to house, gathering up all the Christians because he just hated the church that much. And one day, Jesus appeared in front of him and he said words that if you've got beef with the church ought to haunt you. He didn't say why are you persecuting those people? And he didn't say even, why are you persecuting my people? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And so to live as an enemy of the church is to live as an enemy of its head, of Jesus. That matters because Jesus possesses the gates of his enemy. Jesus knows your phone password. He knows your Wi-Fi password. He has the key to the house on your door. He can walk in. He's even got the key to your very soul. And if you will live on as his enemy, you will live on as one who is finally and fully conquered. There is time to turn back to him. All right, while the offer is still there, you can come back as a friend, receive forgiveness, come back to him. And so that's my final plea to anyone who would live on either indifferent to Jesus or just angry at his church and hating his church. Come back to him, come back to his church. Be one of the many offspring of Rebecca and even of Abraham by trusting in Jesus. Because the ones who trust Jesus to overcome death, to overcome sin, to overcome Satan. Those are the true offspring of Abraham. My prayer is that we would all be one of them. Let's pray together.